Did you know that the 4th of July is on a Thursday this year? That's going to be a full weekend of fun out on the deck, four days. But if your deck isn't what it used to be and you aren't using it for great family gatherings, you need to call my friends at All Weather Decks. All Weather Decks is a 24-time winner of the Angie Super Service Award. And they probably help one of your neighbors. Click on the map link at allweatherdecks.net. Call All Weather Decks today at 913-206-1974 or go to allweatherdecks.net and mention you heard it on 810. Call now and relax. Garrettson and Toth presents The Shift with Jack Johnson on ESPN Kansas City, 1510 AM and 94.5 FM. It is Tuesday and it's another edition of The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I'm your host Jack Johnson alongside Marco Marquez. Shout out to our presenting sponsors starting with Garrettson and Toth. They handle the most complex felony, federal, or state criminal defense cases. You'll find them in doing that successfully, helping criminal defendants all over the Kansas City area and Northeast Kansas for years. Also, be sure to visit Kim Howard and Associates Agency at American Family Insurance at 105th and Metcalf in Overland Park, or give Kim and her team a call at 913-649-2002. That's 913-649-2002 for a quote on your home and auto insurance today. And if you call that number and mention that you heard their ad here on The Shift, being Kim Howard Associates Agency at American Family Insurance, Kim and her team will give you a free gift card to Starbucks to use on whatever you would like, $10 on coffee, tea, or breakfast items. All you got to do is call that number at 913-649-2002 and mention that you heard their ad here on The Shift. Some Chiefs roster moves happened yesterday and not officially yet, but definitely leading in a certain direction. We'll start it off with Orlando Brown Jr., who the Chiefs decided not to franchise tag going into the offseason. They will have a couple of days to work out a long-term extension, and if not, Orlando Brown Jr. will be free to negotiate with other teams. I think it's very interesting on the topic of Orlando Brown Jr. and where the Chiefs were two years ago as opposed to now. I think when Kansas City made that trade with Baltimore, the idea was always going to be he is the future left tackle of this team. He will be the left tackle for Patrick Mahomes for the next five, six, seven years. And in fact, when the Chiefs overhauled that offensive line, the expectation was that group would be the offensive line of the Chiefs for the next five years, half a decade. I think when you hit on Creed Humphrey, you hit on Trey Smith, Joe Tooney was under contract for a long time, and right tackle was a little bit of a revolving door. You've had Andrew Wiley there, you had Mike Remmers there, you had Lucas Niang there. Uh, That's always going to be maybe an open spot, unless the Chiefs are to make a move in the draft this April and go out there and get themselves a starting right tackle. But the expectation was always to give Orlando Brown Jr. that left tackle spot. He was going to be the big money guy. He was only 24 years old when they acquired him. He had been in the Pro Bowl in each of the first three years he was in the league. So you felt like you can bank on this guy. You can gamble on this guy. He's going to be a stud. And I think Orlando Brown Jr. has been a very good left tackle for the Kansas City Chiefs. But the reason Baltimore traded away Orlando Brown Jr. is because, number one, he was a right tackle that moved from left tackle when Ronnie Staley got hurt. And when he got hurt and Orlando Brown Jr. moved to left tackle, 
He wanted to be paid like a left tackle. And the Baltimore Ravens, as you're seeing them now, they're even haggling over money with Lamar Jackson, their franchise quarterback. So they were never going to give Orlando Brown Jr. that money. They were never going to give him the long-term extension. Now, I think the shock to the NFL and the AFC, for that matter, is that they traded Orlando Brown Jr. to their competitor and the team they were chasing in the AFC and helped them quickly fix a problem that had diminished them in the Super Bowl against Tampa Bay. The Chiefs were trying to overhaul their their offensive line, and they wanted to start at left tackle. Now, they had Joe Tooney a few weeks earlier to anchor down the left guard spot, but they needed a great left tackle. And Baltimore gave that to Kansas City. A very young left tackle. A very effective left tackle. But they traded them to Kansas City because Kansas City would give them the picks they needed. And I guess the idea then, or the assumption then, was that Kansas City was going to lock up Orlando Brown Jr. long term. They were going to give him a 5-6, probably not a 7-year contract, but probably in the ballpark of 5-6 to years. And then this last offseason... After Trent Williams got his big-time money, and keep in mind, too, the Chiefs were willing to give that type of money to Trent Williams. Remember when Trent Williams was the free agent? He was almost a Kansas City Chief. And when the Chiefs gave him that big-time offer, he called Kyle Shanahan, head coach of the 49ers, and said, the Chiefs offered me this, I'm taking it unless you can match that or give me more. And the 49ers did just that. Trent Williams, the best left tackle by a long shot, and I mean by an absolute long shot, he went to San Francisco. But the Chiefs were never going to, I guess, back down from offering the big-time money to a left tackle. And Trent Williams, at the time, was 32. You know, He was eight years older than Orlando Brown Jr. And some people were saying, well, do you want to give Trent Williams that type of money because he's on the wrong side of 30? He may start getting banged up at 34, 35. We already saw Trent Williams get injured and this long-term contract with the 49ers. He's already been banged up. But when he's on the field, it's not even close. He's the best left tackle in football. And Trent Williams would have been the anchor on that left side of the Chiefs for a long, long time. And I think Trent Williams would be a great left tackle and to age 35, 36, and 37, assuming he stays healthy. But Orlando Brown Jr. last season, I think, kind of set the mark in which the Chiefs were not going to match. They were never going to come to an agreement because Orlando Brown Jr. wanted to be the highest paid, if not the second highest paid, left tackle in the game. He wanted to get big time money. And age-wise, it made a lot of sense. It made a lot of sense for Kansas City to lock up a guy who's 25 years old, He's probably going to be as good as this, if not a little bit better down the road. And I think that everybody thought, well, that makes a lot of sense. Left tackle is a hard spot. It is a very difficult spot to get an all-pro or a Pro Bowl type of left tackle there. And a multiple-time one at that. You don't just find them on trees. You don't just go out there and walk yourself into finding an all-pro left tackle. It is one of the most important positions on the field. And when you have a Hall of Fame quarterback taking snaps under center... You want to make sure his ass is protected. You got to make sure his blind side is figured out on that left side. And Orlando Brown Jr., early on in Kansas City, had to deal with a little bit of a schematic shift. When he was in Baltimore, Lamar Jackson wasn't dropping back 10, 15 yards in the pocket. That just wasn't their offense. Their offense was very run centric. And when Lamar Jackson was dropping back to pass, they were quick strikes. There were very few times Lamar Jackson was running around in the pocket trying to extend plays and throw the ball. 
if Lamar Jackson was in trouble, he tucked the ball and he ran because he's the best in the game at doing that at the quarterback position. He's the closest thing to Michael Vick that we've seen. So it was an easier left tackle to play for Orlando Brown Jr. in Baltimore, which is why the attraction was originally there. The Chiefs can't really run the football. Orlando Brown Jr. would be a great run-blocking left tackle. But when he got to Kansas City, it was a bit of an adjustment because as we've all seen with Patrick Mahomes, he probably drops back further than any other quarterback in the NFL. He really gives himself time. And maybe that's more of a mental thing because two or three years into his career, Patrick Mahomes didn't have the most stable offensive line. So what do you do naturally? You drop back far from the offensive line so you give yourself some time. You can survey the field a little bit further. And when you have the arm talent, you can drop back that far. Right? If it's third and 10, you can drop back 10 more yards and still feel comfortable you can get it 20 yards down the field for a first down. That's just the way that Patrick Mahomes thinks. But it was an adjustment for Orlando Brown Jr. because he's having to block guys 10, 15 yards upfield, right? He's having to block a very good edge rusher for an extended period of time because Patrick Mahomes' instinct is, I want to hang on to the ball so I can throw it. It wasn't like in Baltimore where Lamar Jackson was, I'm going to read my first two options, and if it's not there, I'm good enough to tuck it and run. I can outrun a lot of guys. So Orlando Brown Jr.'s not blocking guys 10, 15 yards upfield or downfield. Right? He's not having to move around that much. So the initial impression of Orlando Brown Jr. was, this guy's not very good. You know, why the hell is Patrick Mahomes getting blitzed from the left side and Orlando Brown Jr. can't pick him up? He can't handle guys one-on-one. That's supposed to be your left tackle of the future. But then he adjusted, and he adjusted, and he got a lot better. And it's been the same way for two years. Orlando Brown Jr. struggles early on, and then he gets a hell of a lot better down the end of the season because he adjusts once again. And I think that goes the same for everybody. You know, early on in the season, pass protection was a big problem. The two tackles that allowed the most pressures at one point in time in the season, and it was probably about midway part of the season, it was Orlando Brown Jr. and Andrew Wiley. It was a struggling offensive line. And then we saw in the Super Bowl, of course, they didn't allow a single sack. You can chalk it up to the bad field, but hey, guess what? The offensive lineman had to play in the exact same turf as the Eagles' front four, or their front five, or their front six. They were slipping all over the place. The Chiefs had better traction. They stood in there, they hung around in there, and they were great. They had their best performance of the season, and we put that pressure on the Chiefs' offensive line. But now going into the offseason, I think Brett Veach and company realized that maybe the money that Orlando Brown Jr. is asking for isn't worth it. Now, I will go on record as to say, I'm fine either way. And you may not want to hear that. You may want to see me take a side. But if later on today or in this show or tomorrow or the next day, Orlando Brown Jr. signs a long-term extension in Kansas City, I'm not going to complain because you locked up the left tackle spot. I'm not going to have to wonder about who the left tackle the Chiefs will be in 2023-2024. I don't have to worry about it being a rookie. I don't have to worry about the Chiefs going after a guy like David Bakhtiari, one of the best left tackles out of Green Bay, but he's been banged up the last couple of years. It's not an unknown mystery as to who's playing left tackle. You'll know it's Orlando Brown Jr. for the next five to six years. And when right tackle's kind of up in the air, it makes a lot of sense. Right, You don't want to have to have a question mark at right tackle and a question mark at left tackle. You don't want to put your faith in a guy like Lucas Niang who didn't play last year. You don't know if you want to go with Andrew Wiley again because the ceiling is very limited. You don't want to bump out Darian Kennard to right tackle. 
And if you let Orlando Brown Jr. walk, do you trust Joe Tooney to move over to left tackle? Do you want to move the Trey Smith to right left tackle? I don't want to move my guys on the interior where they've been so good. Keep your interior strong and make sure you're not having to question a lot of things on the outside. But in the left tackle spot, I feel like if you gave Orlando Brown Jr. that contract, just know. right? If you give him that long-term extension, it likely means when Creed Humphrey and Trey Smith are done on their rookie deals, you're going to have to let one of those guys walk, if not both. And where do you value right now? You know, I think Creed Humphrey is a top two center in the NFL. The only guy I think I would consider better would be Travis's brother, Jason. I think Jason Kelsey is the best center in the NFC. Creed Humphrey is the best center in the AFC. And I don't think I'm okay with letting Creed Humphrey walk two years from now. I don't think I would be. Because centers are more long-term than left tackles and right tackles can be. They age better. That's why Jason Kelsey is still the best center, if not one of the best centers in the NFL, at his age. You know, Trey Smith, he's the most physical, most mauling, most aggressive right guard, interior guard we've seen since the early 2000s Chiefs offensive line. He's violent. He's a great offensive lineman, and he got even better this year. I don't know if I'm willing to let those two guys walk with the casualty being a lot of money in the direction of Orlando Brown Jr. Now, on the flip side here, they let Orlando Brown Jr. walk. I can see both sides. I can still have the nerves in my stomach of going, okay, how are they going to fix this? Do I feel okay if they let Orlando Brown Jr. walk and they give a good amount of money to David Bakhtiari, who Nate Taylor of The Athletic, who covers the Chiefs on the beat for Athletic, said that that could be an option, that David Bakhtiari was one of the best left tackles in the game at one point, then he battled injuries. You know you'll get him on a cheaper deal than you would Orlando Brown Jr., but he could be a one-to-two-year fix there. Maybe the Chiefs, with their 11 picks in the draft, trade up, go out there and get a guy like Broderick Johnson, a big left tackle out of Georgia. I think Jordan Foote tweeted out earlier today that right now in one of the most recent mock drafts, and I want to make sure I get this guy's name right, but with the 31st pick in the NFL draft, this mock draft done by Dan Brugler, which is mock draft 3.0, he had the Chiefs taking Ohio State tackle Dewan Jones, who is 6'8", 380 pounds, with 36 and 3 and 8-inch arms. So you have a big hulking left tackle that you could fill in there with the 31st pick. Maybe they go through the draft, maybe they go through free agency, but you let Orlando Brown Jr. walk, the only benefit from it is that you're not paying him long-term and maybe two or three years down the line, you can lock up a Creed Humphrey, you can lock up a Trey Smith because they're not generating the type of money that a left tackle would. So Orlando Brown Jr.'s kind of in this standoff with the Chiefs front office because he wants the big-time money, he gambled on himself, and because he finished the season strong, he's likely still going to ask in that same ballpark of where he wanted last year. And I don't think if Brett Veach gave him that type of money last year, he's going to do it this year. Because there were times this year that Orlando Brown Jr. needed help. They needed Jarek McKinnon to chip off the edge. And I don't think you can pay a left tackle to be one of the highest paid tackles at his position if he's needing help on that side. If Orlando Brown Jr. turned in the best season of his career, then maybe he'd be worth the money. But I don't think that Brett Veach is going to give him that long-term money if he didn't last year. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's going to be some movement. Orlando Brown Jr. and his agent back down a little bit 
and it makes sense because locking up a left tackle of the future that you know what you're going to get from him is always a good thing. But at the same time, you have to understand if they give him that long-term money, you're going to lose an offensive lineman or two in two or three years. Who are you more willing to part ways with, OBJ or Trey Smith and Creed Humphrey? That's kind of where I stand with Orlando Brown Jr. I think in the draft, the Chiefs will need to address their, address their right tackle spot. I don't know if it's Lucas Niang. I don't know if it's Darian Kennard. Maybe it's a guy in the draft. Maybe it's Dewan Jones, as Jordan Foote pointed out on Twitter earlier today from Dan Brugler, or Dane Brugler, excuse me. And one of his recent mock drafts, you know, the Chiefs taking a right tackle. Maybe the Chiefs take a right tackle in the second round. I don't know if you find a starter there, but the Chiefs will have some question marks going into the draft and a free agency for that matter. If they let Orlando Brown Jr. walk, hell, I don't know which team would give him the big-time money. You know, I think you want to feel stable on that left side of the line. But at the same time, the Chiefs have shown the ability to move guys around, and those guys have success. I think the worst thing that happened for Orlando Brown Jr. in Kansas City was in 2021, the road season finale in Cincinnati when the Chiefs lost at the buzzer when Evan McPherson had the game-winning 20-plus-yard field goal. Who didn't play in that game? Orlando Brown Jr. Who did? Joe Tooney at left tackle, and Joe Tooney did just fine. Now, it's one game, and it's Joe Tooney being flexible because he also played a little bit of left tackle in New England. But when you can be flexible, and you're already paying Joe Tooney the big-time bucks, the Chiefs may think, hey, when you're gone, there wasn't that massive of of a hole to fill. Physically, yes, Orlando Brown Jr. is 6'7", 330, 340 pounds. But in terms of moving the offense, putting up points, Joe Tooney did just fine. And the Chiefs want to find their left tackle of the future. Is it Orlando Brown Jr., though? I can't really say it is. Like I said, I could go both ways. They sign him long term, I'm fine with it because I don't have to wonder who the left tackle for Kansas City will be this next season the years after that. On the flip side, they don't pay him. Likely means they're saving money to extend Chris Jones. Maybe give Juju some money. Maybe extend Creed Humphrey and Trey Smith in a couple of years. That's what you can do with that type of money. Now, the other roster move that the Chiefs are expected to make here in the coming days or coming weeks is cut Frank Clark. So the 29-year-old, who is the sack leader in the postseason in Chiefs history, is likely to be released by the Kansas City Chiefs here in a couple of days or maybe a week or so. So Frank Clark, the all-time leader in sacks in postseason history for the Chiefs at 10.5, that was four more than the late great Derek Thomas and also four more than Neil Smith and and 6.5 more than Justin Houston, the Chiefs have decided to move on from him. And this is really uh, the more of the no-brainer move. I, I know it it sucks to say. It maybe hurts to hear if you fell in love with Frank Clark. And he was one of the icons of the two Super Bowl-winning Chiefs teams, right, because he was so effective in the postseason. He was great in 2019-2020, and he was great, of course, in 2022-2023, but mainly just in the postseason. Now, overall, his numbers in Kansas City were not what they paid him to be. You know, when he was with Seattle for those four years, he had 35 sacks in 62 games, but he only started 33 of those. 
So in 33 starts over four years with Seattle, he had 35 sacks. In 55 starts and 58 games with Kansas City in four years, he had 23 and a half sacks. So I know sacks aren't everything, but when you're paying an edge rusher the big-time money, you likely want them to get a lot of sacks. And before the Chiefs had paid Frank Clark or traded for Frank Clark, then paid him, he had 13 sacks in Seattle. The highest total he had in Kansas City was eight, and that was in his first year. He regressed a little bit. He had six in 2020, he had four and a half in 2021, and he had five last year in Kansas City. The benefit of cutting Frank Clark, as much as it pains me to say, kind of rooting for Frank Clark in every aspect because he was a guy that dealt with a lot. You know, he lost his dad in a house fire, a tragic incident there. He dealt with a, battled an illness going back to 2019 that made him lose, what was it, 50 or 60 pounds? I mean, really slimmed out. He battled through a lot, and also he battled through criticism from the fan base because he was a top-paid player on this roster, and he wasn't always performing in the regular season, or he'd miss games due to illness, or he'd miss practice. But I think Frank Clark was one of the main reasons as to why the Chiefs won two Super Bowls. But the benefit of cutting Frank Clark now at 29 years of age is you save $21 million in cap. You can use that money, like we just said. If you want to extend Chris Jones, you want to extend Orlando Brown Jr., you want to give Juju Smith-Schuster the money, you want to extend another player out there, you have that option now. Or if you want to spend some money on the edge market, maybe go out and get the, another one-year deal like you did with Carlos Dunlap. You get a more effective, more productive edge rusher at that position. Now, Frank Clark, like I said, the, the thing with Frank Clark throughout his entire career in Kansas City. It was the exact same. He kind of was there in the regular season. He'd have his big moments. He wasn't a guy that just dominated tackles. You know, he's a little bit undersized by the end of it. But when the postseason came around, he was this MVP caliber type of player. Always seemed to show up in the postseason. So it begs the question, was the contract worth it? Right, Because you did get two Super Bowl rings. I don't think you get them without Frank Clark. Because when Chris Jones wasn't getting sacks in the postseason, it was Frank Clark that was getting it done. But you have to understand that edge rushers always reach their limit. I I think edge rushers have a very small window in the NFL unless they're future Hall of Famers. right? You'll get an edge rusher that can be really damn good for about three to four years. And then once they get on the wrong side of 30, they're not going to be as effective. You know, they're going to really tail off. I think a perfect example to go off of in Kansas City was Justin Houston. Justin Houston was considered to be one of the best edge rushers in football, if not the best in the AFC next to Vaughn Miller in Denver for years. Like, Justin Houston was unbelievably dominant. And then after he left Kansas City, he went to Indianapolis, and he's on Baltimore. You don't hear much from Justin Houston anymore. I think Frank Clark's kind of the same. Frank Clark is this postseason performer. He's not much of a regular season stat type of guy, less than 10 sacks in the last ten two years. You know, I think it's time to move on. Everybody knows that the NFL is a business. Every sports organization is a business. You can't be best friends with everybody. And I don't think Frank Clark will look back at his time in Kansas City, illy, or reflect poorly on the organization because you won two Super Bowl rings. And last year, I think the expectation was the Chiefs were going to cut cut Frank Clark. The numbers weren't there. They wanted to get younger at that spot. 
They wanted to go through the draft. They brought in George Karlovitz. They signed Carlos Dunlap. But they restructured a deal and brought back Frank Clark. Now, just because they cut him now doesn't mean they can't bring him back. He can become a free agent. They can renegotiate a new deal. One-year deal for Frank Clark, and he's back. I could honestly see it as well. But I think with cutting him now, maybe the, the writing in the sand is that Frank Clark is on his way out. You know, they're, they're going to try to go through the draft again, get an edge rusher. They've been mocked in multiple drafts to take B.J. Ojolari out of LSU, Derek Hall, Derek Hall out of Auburn, you know, a guy like Felix Enudike Uzama out of Kansas State. There's options out there in the draft. And I think the Chiefs do want to get younger because they view George Karloftis and maybe somebody in the 2023 NFL draft to be their edge rushers long term. If you want to lock up Chris Jones, it's about saving some money through the cap. And they save $21 million by cutting Frank Clark. You can thank him for his time. You can thank him for what he did. He won you two Super Bowl rings on the defensive side of things. And then you move on. That's what good organizations do. Like I said, it's a business. You can't be buddy-buddy with everybody. You can't please everyone. You can't give the money to everyone. And I think what I will always refer back to is the fact that the Chiefs didn't pay Tyreek Hill. And I think of three players in the last five years for Kansas City, that I always believed, no matter what happened, they would get their extension. That would be Patrick Mahomes. That would be Travis Kelsey. That would be Tyreek Hill. And when the Chiefs traded Tyreek Hill instead of paying him, it made me think, okay, anytime you make it attached to a player, it doesn't mean he's going to be around forever. When they traded for Orlando Brown Jr., I still thought, there's no doubt in my mind, he is the left tackle for the next six to seven years. No doubt in my mind. Now I sit here and go, it wouldn't shock me if he left. It would not shock me one bit if they let him walk. And the same thing with Frank Clark. He's going to be 30 next year. He hasn't been a game wrecker in the regular season. And though he's been great in the postseason, is it worth it to keep him around when he's not going to be productive for really the first 17 games of the season? He'll be there from time to time. But for the most part, You can't just pay a guy a lot of money because he shows up in the postseason. It's great, and Frank Clark, like I just said, one of the main reasons you got a Super Bowl. Two of them, in fact. But there's always a time to move on, and I think both sides understood the fact that the Chiefs were going to move on at the end of the season. But it was great for Frank Clark to go out on top. I think people look back on him fondly because he was a part of two Super Bowl winning teams. He was a starter on both those teams, and he showed up. He showed up when it mattered most. But I think the Chiefs are making some tough decisions early on, but last year was a pretty big indicator that the Chiefs, for to extend this window, window for the Chiefs, you have to move on from guys at times. And when you're good at drafting, you're good at finding value through free agency, you can always keep that window open. Because some teams out there, they're so afraid or so desperate to capitalize on the window, they're going to extend everybody on their current team. Like Buffalo and Cincinnati – they're going to be in a little bit of crunch time mode. They're going to be in that desperation mode because in this window of the last four years, Buffalo doesn't have a Super Bowl appearance, Cincinnati doesn't have a Super Bowl win, and Kansas City has two. When you look at the two best competitors of Kansas City, they're going to be the teams that go out and give the money to the players in free agency, the big-time contracts that may or may not work out. The Chiefs don't have to gamble all the time because they've showed in the draft and through free agency they can build this roster. A little bit younger. They're one of the youngest teams in the NFL, surprisingly, after winning their second Super Bowl in the last three seasons. That's pretty shocking to think about. But again, you're always going to be faced with some tough decisions when you have a lot of good players. 
And when those good players are wanting long-term deals or wanting to come back on 10, 11, 12 million dollar deals per year, you got to think is it worth it or not? Does it benefit your team two or three years down the road? I think with Orlando Brown Jr. and Frank Clark, maybe the common perception is that it's not going to be very beneficial two or three years down the road because they want to extend other players on this roster. It's a cold, cold business, but when you do things the right way and you get a lot of value through the draft, you hit on most of your free agents, you can afford to be a little bit risky or take the bold approach and let big-time players walk. We'll see what Brett Veach does here over the next couple of weeks and leading into the draft about what he wants to do with Orlando Brown Jr. and if he does want to bring back a guy like Frank Clark. Marker, before we head to break, takeaways on the Chiefs not tagging Orlando Brown Jr. and then expected to release Frank Clark, who is coming off one of his better postseason years. He will go down now unless somebody emerges here or one of the young guys emerges as the all-time leader in postseason sacks. He's got 10.5, which is 4.5 or 3.5 more than Derek Thomas. So takeaways on both those players potentially not being in Kansas City next season. Yeah, I mean, definitely difference makers, especially Frank Clark, um, a huge piece of the Chiefs' two Super Bowl titles in the last four years. Uh, There's not not enough you could say about the guy from what he was able to do in the playoffs and the great sound bites that he has left us that we'll cherish – as long as the Chiefs are a standing franchise and the NFL is existent, um, it's 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 he was a he was a key piece, and there's no doubt about it. And for anyone out there that still is a hater or um, believes that that contract and that trade wasn't worth it, uh, shut up. You don't like Super Bowls, then that's really it. So. Uh, gonna miss Frank Clark. Gonna miss him in the locker room. If they can figure out a cheaper option and bring him back, that'd be amazing. I have no problem with the Chiefs bringing back either of these two guys. Um, but what I would have an issue with is, of course, overpaying, um, uh, especially because, like you said, with Clark age. But Orlando Brown, for me, I, I just I never saw him as a long, a long, a, an expensive long term fit a guy that you look at and say all right he needs to be locked down for five years making 20 20 plus million a year getting what he wants I never saw I never saw Orlando Brown as the type of player that he sees himself value wise when it comes to the contract so I'm fine with the Chiefs doing that I'm fine with it because at the end of the day there's really not unless it's unless it's a player that you can trade or is someone that has uh, other ty- other ways you can, um, I guess, del- deal-, deal them out at- and not get anything in return. Uh, Brown, he's one of those guys where if you let walk, um, he's going to be a gem to some other organization that is going to give him a buttload of money and in return the Chiefs get a comp pick. So I think right now um, – you just got to put your trust in the Brett Veach. And if anything, this last offseason was that type of year where it was big on Veach, earning the trust of not only the fans, but just the critics and the people who break down this stuff and try to get in the mind of a GM and see how exactly how they operate to put out the best roster that they can while 
of course, remain under the cap as um, and, and with the cap sit or figuring out the cap situation itself. That's what makes great makes a GM great. And Brett Veach proved that this year um, through the draft and of course dealing out players. So for me, um, I'm fine with it because looking around at other options and you're referencing the jo- Jordan's for- Jordan Foot's article, um, it's either you bring back Brown. You lock you you go out and get one of the free agent tackles, or you uh, go out and make a trade. So, looking at the tackles of the future um, or potential future, the guys who are up for expiring contracts. I mean, next year Laramie Tunsil is going to be, or uh, yeah, next year Laramie Tunsil is going to be a free agent. Uh, Donovan Smith, the guy who's been protecting Tom Brady, the goat over there in Tampa, he's going to be a free agent. Um, Taylor Luan as uh, Jordan mentioned in his article, uh, he's a free agent right now, not next year. So right now, if you want to go out and sign him, that is that is there also. So I could see it to where the Chiefs, maybe they uh, bring in a veteran and then, like you mentioned, trade up and draft. I like that. I also like going out and trading for maybe one of the guys who's going to be a free agent next year, Laramie Tunsil. He's only 28 years old right now. But there is a chance that he could be a there is a there is a potential out for him this year in Houston. I don't think they're gonna cut him considering he's a little under seventeen million dead cap. So next year he has thirty five million dollars as a cap hit. If the Chiefs trade for him and sign him extend and, and extend him, you can spread that out and of course add on to what add on the amount that you can. So he already has a contract figured out at least for one more year. So the options that there are outside of Orlando Brown, I like. And so, um, listen, got him a Super Bowl, played his best game of the year in the Super Bowl. You can't thank him enough. He is somebody who was a big contributor to the success of the offense um, in the playoffs. But at the end of the day, got to protect Patrick Mahomes as much as you can. And the regular season matters. If you can't, if you don't have a healthy Mahomes in the regular season, with Andy Reid, it's nice because of the history he has with backup quarterbacks. But you just you you got you got to protect that side of all costs, and if they see that Orlando Brown isn't someone that they want long term, and they can't trust at the left tackle long term, then I, I'm at and then you have to you have to kind of lean towards Brett Veach and the way that he runs things because the man literally went into a, went into a rebuild year and won the Super Bowl and and put up what 14 wins in the regular season. So yeah, fourteen and three in the regular season, and then of course swept everybody on his way to another Super Bowl win. So you got to have faith in this front office because even when they traded away, arguably their best weapon, their most explosive weapon, skill player wise, in Tyree Kill, they had their best season in franchise history. So they didn't pay Tyree Kill. Does it make you believe they'll play Orlando Brown Jr.? Does it make you think they'll bring back Frank Clark on a cheaper deal? Sometimes Brett Veach just looks forward to the future because the best thing about this team is that in a year where they needed to rebuild a soft rebuild at that and more of a a retooling year, not much of a rebuild year, they found a way to win a Super Bowl. Even if they let Orlando Brown Jr. walk, I think they'll find a fix through the draft or maybe through free agency, and this offense will still be a top-three scoring offense in the league. They lock up Orlando Brown Jr. long-term. Hey, don't have to worry about who's playing left tackle for the Chiefs this upcoming season. Let's take our first break of the show. When we come back, let's go over Joe Lunardi's most recent bracketology where each team falls 
in the Midwest, East, West, and South region. That's next on The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN, Kansas City. We are just five days away from Selection Sunday. You are listening to The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. And we mentioned that we wanted to do this in the weeks leading up to the Selection Sunday, to the NCAA tournament, and breaking down Joe Lunardi's bracketology. And the best thing about this is then on Monday of next week, we'll be able to go over the entire bracket breakdown and the actual matchups going into the NCAA tournament. But I always think it's interesting to go over the bracketology, the predictions, because sometimes they aren't far off. You know, the seedings are usually right. The matchups, they can be hit or miss. But I did think this was very interesting to go over, and this was updated uh, about last night at 12.15, so I guess you could say the early hours of the morning, just past midnight, but Joe Lunardi updated his bracketology right now he has the number one overall seed as the Kansas Jayhawks, despite their loss to Texas in Austin on Saturday. He actually keeps the Kansas Jayhawks at the exact same spot that he had in his most recent bracketology. The first team out, he has his Oklahoma State, Nevada, as the last team in. On the bubble, the last four buys, he has Boise State, NC State, Pittsburgh, and Penn State. The last four in... He has Mississippi State, Utah State, Rutgers, and, of course, Nevada. The force four out, as we mentioned, Oklahoma State. He also has Wisconsin, Arizona State, and North Carolina, who lost to Duke on Saturday. Now 12 losses on the season, just one quad one win. They will likely need to fare pretty well in the ACC tournament for a chance to get back in. The next four out, he has Jawan Howard's Michigan Wolverines, Charleston, Clemson, and Oregon out of the Pac-12. Now, as for the play-in games, he has Southeast Missouri State and Farley Dickinson as the 16-versus-16 matchup. The other 16-versus-16 matchup, he has Howard and Alcorn State. The 11-versus-11 matchups, he has Mississippi State out of the SEC against Utah State. And then he also has Rutgers and Nevada going head-to-head in the Dayton first four matchups in the 68-team bracket. So those are the full uh, Dayton, Ohio matchups right now per Joe Lunardi's bracketology. Now for the Midwest region, the one seed, of course, with them being the overall number one seed, getting to pick their region, it would be the Kansas Jayhawks as the one. The 16 seed would either be Southeast Missouri State or Farley Dickinson as the play-in teams. The 8-9 matchup would be Missouri and Memphis. Memphis almost knocking off number one Houston on Sunday afternoon. Missouri, of course, who has just been on a tear down the stretch in SEC play. They get a double bye in the SEC tournament. And I'm going to go out there and say this. There is no way in hell Missouri should be an eight seed. I think more likely a six seed. I think if they win at least one game in the SEC tournament, they should be probably a six seed. I don't know why Missouri would be an eight seed. They're 25th in the country. They finish in the AP Top 25 to close out the regular season. That is not an eight seed. And if that is an eight seed, that's an incredibly dangerous eight seed. So Missouri and Memphis as the 8-9 matchup in the Midwest region. The 5-12 matchup would be Miami and VCU. Miami, of course, one of the top teams in the ACC. VCU 
always seems to be incredibly dangerous, even in the aftermath of Shaka Smart in the NCAA tournament. The 4-13 matchup he has as Indiana and Toledo. The 6-11 matchup, Michigan State out of the Big Ten against the winner of Mississippi State and Utah State. The three seed, speaking of Shaka Smart, would be Marquette taking on Kennesaw State, who just got a bid to their first ever appearance in the NCAA tournament after winning their conference tournament. They are the 14th seed. The 7th seed would be Texas A&M. Again, pretty low for a team that was battling near the top of the SEC. They are the 7 playing in Sacramento against NC State. And the 2 seed in the Midwest region, Lunardi has his Arizona going up against UNC Asheville. As for the West region, which would be playing in Las Vegas, and the Sweet 16 to lead 8, Lunardi has UCLA as the number one overall seed, taking that from Purdue. The 16th seed would be Texas A&M, Corpus Christi. The 8-9 matchup would be Florida Atlantic taking on Auburn out of the SEC. Auburn will take on Arkansas in the first round of the SEC tournament. Some are saying that may dictate who moves on to the the NCAA tournament and who will be watching from the couch this season. I don't know, though. I think both teams should be able to get in. I know some people want to put that in terms of just making it a bigger matchup because Auburn and Arkansas, of course, both wildly underachieved this season. But I do think both teams would be safe as an 8 or a 9 seed. But Auburn right now, the 9 in the West, taking on 8-seeded Florida Atlantic. The 5-seed, St. Mary's taking on 12-seeded Charleston. The 4-seed, Virginia against 13-seeded Utah Valley. The 6 playing at Albany would be Kentucky, who is suddenly hot. They were in danger early on in the season of not even making the NCAA tournament. They are certainly safe as a 5 or a 6 going into the NCAA tournament. They would be taking on 11-seeded Pittsburgh, who is going the opposite direction, slumping of late, uh, playing out of the Big East. The 3-seed being Gonzaga in the West, taking on 14-seeded Furman. The 7-seed being Northwestern, going up against 10-seeded Providence. And the 2-seed Texas Longhorns, taking on 15-seeded Vermont. That is the entire breakdown of the West region per Joe Lunardi. Out of the South region, he has the number one seed being Alabama playing in Birmingham against 16-seeded Cleveland State. The 8-9 matchup being Illinois and West Virginia. Shows how deep the Big 12 is. West Virginia finished eighth in the conference this year, and they are a nine seed right now projected to be in the NCAA tournament. Another Big 12 team playing in Greensboro, the five-seeded TCU Horn Frogs taking on the 12-seeded Drake Bulldogs. The 4-13 matchup would be Xavier and Yale. The sixth seed in the South region being San Diego State taking on Big Ten foe Penn State. The three-seed would be Kansas State out of the Big 12 taking on 14-seeded UC Irvine. That has been the matchup I've seen the most in Joe Lunardi's bracketology has been Kansas State and UC Irvine. Not a lot of movement on that end. I wonder if they will stick with that matchup, assuming Kansas State stays as a three-seed in the NCAA tournament. The seven-seed he has is Duke, taking on 10-seeded USC. And the two-seed in the South region would be Purdue, taking on 15-seeded Colgate. And lastly, in the East region... He has the number one seed as the Houston Cougars, taking on the winner of Howard and Alcorn State. The 8-9 matchup would be Maryland out of the ACC, taking on nine-seeded Arkansas out of the SEC. The five-seed playing in Albany, New York, would be Iowa State, who got a big win over Scott Drew's Baylor Bears in Waco last Saturday. He has the Cyclones taking on 12-seeded Oral Roberts. The four-seed, the suddenly red-hot UConn Huskies, 
who were down and out, not from missing the NCAA tournament, but were at one point top five in the nation, and it really bottomed out. They're now suddenly hot again, and a four seed in the NCAA tournament, Iona as the 13 seed in that matchup. Creighton as the sixth seed in the East region, taking on the winner of Rutgers and Nevada, but of course Lunardi as Nevada as one of the teams out right now in his most recent bracketology. Maybe that'll be another team playing in those first four games in Dayton, Ohio. The three seed he has is Tennessee, taking on 14-seeded Louisiana, who just punched their ticket as well to the NCAA tournament. The seven seed he has is Iowa, taking on 10-seeded Boise State, and Baylor as the two seed in Denver, taking on 15-seeded Montana State. As for the full conference breakdown, there would be 10 teams out of the Big Ten, eight out of the SEC, seven of the 10 teams coming out of the Big 12, five from the ACC, five from the Big East, three from the Pac-12, three from the Mountain West, two from the WCC, and two from the American. So that is the most recent bracketology breakdown from Joe Lunardi. He has Kansas as the number one overall seed in the Midwest region, which would run through Des Moines and then Kansas City for the Jayhawks. The eighth seed in that region he has as the Missouri Tigers, who get a double bye in the SEC tournament. And then in the East region, or excuse me, it was the the South region out of Louisville, he has for the Kansas State Wildcats as the three seed playing in Denver. And then if they advance past that, going on to play in Louisville. So that is the complete breakdown again from Joe Lunardi. I'm sure he'll have one more before Selection Sunday. Maybe this would be the last one because they usually come out on Monday if there are to be any changes, but I do feel like this could be one of the final ones that Lunardi does before Selection Sunday, which will take place on Sunday. And there will be a special March Madness Selection Sunday breakdown on Sunday on Sports Radio 810 WHB, so so be sure to tune in to see where all the teams fall in certainly one of the most exciting tournaments in sports. In sports, let's go as far to say that. I think March Madness might be the best thing that sports has to offer. I'm a big baseball fan. The WBC is coming up, baseball's coming up, spring training, all that. I love the NFL playoffs, love the NBA playoffs. Uh, I don't think there's anything that particularly comes close to March Madness. Truly one of the greatest times of the year. Let's take our final break of the show. When we come back, we will wrap it up with some fact or fiction. That's next on 94.5 FM and 15:10 AM, ESPN, Kansas City. Welcome back into the shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. Let's wrap up our show with some fact or fiction. Five questions, five takes in under five minutes. Marco, fire away. Jack, fact or fiction, Orlando Brown Jr. gets extended. I just think I'm going to go off my prediction that I kind of made in the first segment, that if Brett Veach didn't give him the contract last year, I have a hard time imagining him giving the contract this year. If they didn't tag him, I understand that still means they can work out a long-term extension. I just don't know if they want to. right? I don't know if Orlando Brown Jr. is worth becoming uh, one of the top two highest-paid tackles in the NFL. I know it makes you uneasy. It makes you nervous. They wouldn't have maybe a plan in place immediately for the left tackle spot, but... We have seen Brett Veach hit on a lot of draft pack picks over the last couple of years. They find value through free agency. I would be okay if they let him walk. So I'm going to go fact. I do think, or fiction, excuse me, I do not think that Orlando Brown Jr. will be extended this offseason. Frank Clark signs a one-year de- deal elsewhere. 
I think fact. I, I think somebody will give him a one-year deal. I'm sure that Kansas City will try to negotiate something, uh, but I don't know if Frank Clark and his agent would want to do that. If you're thinking, man, you just cut me. You didn't want to pay me that type of money. Why would I go back and sign with you on a cheaper deal? Maybe Frank Clark wants that. Maybe he wants to continue to chase Super Bowl rings, which he'd have a very good chance to do in Kansas City, but I'm sure somebody else in the NFL would pounce on that. Maybe a one-year, $8 to $9 million deal, maybe 10 or 11 depending how the edge market falls, but I do think Frank Clark signs elsewhere on a one-year deal. I'll go fact on that. Fact or fiction, KU will play West Virginia, Baylor, and Texas in the Big 12 tournament. Okay, so that means they have to get to the title game in Kansas City. I think it's pretty much a no-brainer at this point that West Virginia is going to win over Texas Tech. Texas Tech has too much going on outside uh, of the arenas, off the court, with, of course, Mark Adams being suspended. There's a lot of distractions there. West Virginia is a team that right now Lunardi has as a nine seed in the NCAA tournament. They are far better than Tech, so I think they will play Kansas on Thursday. If Kansas gets past them, I don't think Baylor's going to be upending the way that Iowa State did to them on Saturday in Waco, so I think they would get Baylor in that Friday matchup, and if they do get past Baylor for the second time this year, Man, you could go with Kansas State, Texas, or TCU. Because it's three teams I have to hit on, I want to take my odds here and go fiction. I feel pretty confident in the West Virginia-Baylor matchup, but anybody can come over from that any other side. TCU can get hot. Kansas State is damn good. And, of course, you can never count out the two-seed Texas Longhorns. So I'll go fiction. I don't think they will be perfect three-for-three on that prediction. K-State needs to reach the finals in order to be a number two seed. I think they likely have to win it uh, to become a two-seed in the NCAA tournament. I don't think nine losses would be good enough, despite as good as their resume has been with a lot of quad one wins. I think the Cats will have to win in Kansas City to lock up that two seed right now. I think they're pretty locked in to be a three, regardless if they lose or not in the early rounds. Missouri ceiling is a five seed? I think if they win the SEC tournament, they could. And they still are very talented. They are a team that can win the SEC tournament because I don't think a team like a and going to do it. I don't think Kentucky's going to do it. Arkansas and Auburn, I don't think will get hot enough. Hell, man, I feel pretty confident that Missouri could at least get to the title game. Marco's wearing his Missouri sweatshirt. But I do think they have to at least win the SEC tournament in Atlanta, I think it is, to become a five seed. I think they're probably in the ballpark of a six or seven right now. There is Ray Charles. That means it's time to go. That wraps up another edition of The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I've been your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. We'll talk to you tomorrow at 10 AM. You take it easy, Kansas City. I'll be someday. I'll be